COP26 may be over, but the conversation has only just begun. And for this podcast, I'll be inviting the stakeholders, firms and organisations that innovate, inspire and encourage small sustainable steps to drive a positive legacy on the road to 2030. For today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Sarah Middlemas, who is the Chief Operating Officer for Ecometrica. Sarah, thanks a lot for taking the time to join us today. Um, we always kind of kick off the show with just a little bit about yourself and your, your journey and a bit about what your current role is at Ecometrica and how that's evolved over the years. Absolutely. So, um, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, my career path, I suppose, um, isn't completely an obvious one. So um, I left university having studied business management, but um, was able to kind of study various modules relating to sustainable development within that degree. So obviously graduated full of optimism and wanted to save the world and, and, and do all sorts of things. So actually started my career in the third sector. So working um, in international development, working and volunteering. So um, doing things abroad in Vietnam and Nicaragua around kind of sanitation and health. Um, so working with people with disabilities and then coming back um, to the UK and working for uh, an organisation called the Scottish Fair Trade Forum, which is a campaigning organisation for the fair trade movement. Um, I, I soon realised, though, that working for the third sector alone, it just wasn't. Uh, I suppose getting my juices flowing um, wasn't able I wasn't able to kind of have a, the impact I wanted and then I came across this company Ecometrica and was very fortunate to be introduced to the to the chairman uh, Richard Tipper who kind of explained what they do and, and and I really just was hoping for some career advice to be honest um, but then was able to join this this amazing company so um, Ecometrica is a sustainability software company so we provide a kind of complete ESG reporting um, solution. So um, helping companies uh, report their GHG emissions, for example, to help them comply with various um, regulations and, and legislation, um, but also kind of look at ongoing monitoring of their environmental impact and start to look at, at into the future as well, looking at predicting different risks and, and opportunities. So I, I started um, working just as the kind of mapping side of our solution started to come to force. So as well as this sort of GHG accounting software, we also use satellite data so we can ha have very kind of geospecific information for what's happening on the ground in terms of environmental impact, land use change, that kind of thing. And I was able to join just as that part of the of the solution was really starting to grow and, and, and gain some traction. Um, and then uh, we won a contract with the UK Space Agency um, and the space programme at Ecometrica was born. So I got the very, um, I suppose, I think I was dubbed the coolest job title in the company for a while as space programme manager. Um, so I was really working kind of between our, our more commercial side and um, our R&D side to kind of get out there and, and understand what, what what are the kind of problems that need to be solved and then help kind of translate that into a company to to sort of produce solutions so we ran a, a very large project called forest 2020 which was looking at using earth observation data to help improve how forests are monitored across the tropics so it was an amazing thing to be a part of um you know working across uh, colombia mexico ghana kenya indonesia working across government and private sector to 
improve the data that's available and then make it easier for people to use that across government and private sector to actually have that impact to reduce deforestation. So that's sort of a whirlwind tour of my <laughs> of my life at Ecometrica. And, and now it's kind interesting kind of journey you mentioned there, Sarah, because on the podcast for we've had people from kind of all walks of um, life in terms of you know kind of the third sector, the private sector, uh, public sector as well. And I think it is important that there's people in each of those respective sectors that are kind of doing their own bit as such. But I think you're right in the sense that, you know, it does seem to me that over the last couple of years there's been a shift away from net zero and climate and the kind of public and government domain to industry kind of driving this. Is that a fair assessment? Would, would you say that's something you've started to see that kind of ramp up? I mean, obviously you guys, it's been probably the last two, three years, has been the major period of growth, if you like, for Ecometrica. And, um, do you, can you see that continuing or have you saw, seen a slowdown since COP? Because it seems to be a bit of a theme that we had this real acceleration last year and it is starting to tail off. Or do you still see it being very much dominated in the mainstream discussion? I think for us, we're still seeing kind of a lot of momentum since COP. Um, you know, it was it was a great event. There was a huge amount of momentum running up to it. People were kind of coming out of the pandemic. They'd had that chance to reassess and climate was top of the agenda. And I think it was the first COP where business really turned up and they were really engaged. And it was a great thing to be a part of. And I have to admit afterwards, I was a little bit hesitant. Like, is, is this going to keep up? But I think it's... It's fair to say, I think with the the kind of not necessarily the pressure, but the kind of regulations and um, support from the government, it's meant that the business that business has had to kind of keep it up in some respects. So for us, obviously, we're we help companies with their reporting and their disclosure, and it's fair to say that coming out of COP, that's remained quite high up the agenda. Um, so one of the one of the things that came out was the creation of the International Sustainability Standards Board, so ISSB, which sits under the IFRS, which sets all of the global standards for accounting, for financial accounting. And that for us was quite important That I, because I think for a while, the fact that there are so many different kind of reporting standards that companies can disclose to. Um, I mean, I think I saw a report by EY that said there's something like over 600 different reporting standards. And that's that's a lot. And it's fair enough that, that business is kind of a bit confused, doesn't know where to start. And in some ways, that can perhaps be a bit of an excuse. Um, but by bringing everything together onto one kind of global standards board, it kind of helps sort of disentangle that. But also what I think is quite important is the fact that it sits under that kind of financial accounting standards board. It shows how increasingly it's got to align with those financial standards. And I think we're going to see the idea of kind of sustainability accounting reporting. It's going to become just as sort of professional. People are going to have those skills and qualifications in the same way that financial accountants do. And it's it's kind of looking at that becoming embedded within companies and just becoming a kind of a factor of operation really. Yeah it's interesting you mentioned about that sustainable in the financial accounting piece because one of the, the threads that's ran through this uh, show actually has been a bit around the, the procurement aspect as well you know so for companies that are perhaps getting public sector funding or, or whatnot that they do need to have those relevant accounting procedures in place and that increasingly they are going to be linked towards you know financial reporting but also procurement as well is that one i suppose that you know the pros and cons are that you know 
how do businesses get on that journey and is there a risk that we leave behind the sort of smaller guys because the big guys have got all that in place and, and how do how do you see that one kind of square and say that yeah it, i think it's definitely fair to say for a small company it can be super daunting and you know even even our customers they're all big companies because we because our software solution is built for kind of large operations where you've got multiple sites and we kind of make it easier i think it'd be really important to kind of demystify that for small companies and i, I remember a, a, a discussion we we were on at, at one of the cop events the idea of almost having like an easy button for smaller companies so they have kind of quite simple things that they are able to report to so the bar isn't too high because i think for a small company if you know it, it is and this, I suppose, again it's kind of similar to financial accounting you don't as a as a small company you don't have to kind of go through this whole audit process that a listed company or a large company does so i think it's trying to set standards to in a similar vein for smaller companies so that they can still disclose but it's not too onerous a burden on them. And it's just sort of things that the data is easy for them to get. And it's sort of, there's an easy format for them to report against as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think that's, that's definitely something that's key here. It's funny you mentioned about all the other reporting mechanisms. Yeah, I, I do think having that unilateral piece is definitely key. And for me, it was one of the, I guess, the, the key sort of policy developments that came out of, of COP certainly as well. I suppose just moving on from the, the cop key cop piece and one of the things you touched upon there say that um throughout your description mentioned with the global reach and the kind of global markets that you're in i suppose where do you how are you finding and how you seeing the international collaboration between those countries and the uk slash scotland is that something that we probably need to ramp up because it seems as though there is a bit of a you know climate tech community growing in scotland you know and i think a lot of the analysis research shows that but I think for, for us, the next step is actually getting it out there into the international markets you know, in very similar fashion that you guys have, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I, I think the thing about climate and sustainability is that it's a, it's a global challenge. And so the solutions required to meet it should also be kind of global in scale and, and ambition. Um, and we're definitely seeing kind of great traction in um in North America. We we're lucky we have an office in um in Montreal. But again, kind of coming out of last year, the the SEC in the US announced mandatory carbon reporting is is coming into the US and next year I believe and then Canada will be 2024. So again, that's a, a huge and potentially transformational market that it's really important that we kind of have those links so we can we can support. Um, and then on the other side, also, I think from a more kind of um, international development perspective, there's obviously a huge amount that we can do that can have a, a quite significant impact. But that really needs to be supported by the climate finance that was that was promised at COP. Um, you know, the, the work that we were doing with, with forestry, it was very much about working alongside governments, about kind of um, helping them to improve how their data what well, what data they can produce to monitor forests, to monitor environmental change, and then supporting them by by kind of um, imp implementing 
business models so that we can provide um, companies with exactly the same data so it's authoritative so they know that that data is kind of national and, and official to help them monitor their own supply chains for example so in, in Ghana looking at cocoa supply chains and then kind of having a bit of a feedback loop so that we can feedback some of the some of the revenues that we're getting from companies who are using our, our software to to check if there's deforestation of supply chains and then feed that back to the government so that they can continue to update their data to improve their own monitoring system so they have a kind of national view. And again, we can then update the information that we're providing to, to companies. No, I think, I think that a lot of that is very important work there because I think, you know, listen, government now, particularly more now than ever, actually, have got kind of a million and one things on the agenda as it were. Yeah. But I think it's important for them that they do have those kind of trusted, critical friends as it were to go in terms of, you know, in terms of advice and, and you know, data and whatnot as well. I mean, I think one point just talking there about some of what you guys have done with kind of government and piece, uh, pieces across the globe is it does seem that governments across the globe are generally starting to get on board. Do you, do you think that industry needs to also pick up the kind of mantle as it were as well, you know, because it's not just a case of saying, your government also kind of solve this alone and you know they're the ones that kind of pump the money and do you think we need to see a bit more kind of match fund a bit more buy-in from industry as well as government definitely i think we've, we've got to go together and i think the longer we spend saying oh no but it's government's role oh no it's business's role that's just going to delay it it's really i think government can provide some of that innovation funding but more importantly an enabling environment but it is up to the private sector. They're agile. They have more money that they can put into this stuff. So they really have to kind of work hand in hand. And I think that's particularly where the investment community can play a really big role um, in terms of actually channeling money in to de-risk some of these new technologies to make it more appealing to be investing in kind of greener or non-harmful technologies and industries than harmful ones. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and on that piece as well there, you know, you, you and I both kind of in the, the, the tech sector, if you like, you know, as a broad term, where do you kind of see the tech sector's journey in the broader net zero piece? Because I think up until a couple of years ago, kind of a lot of the analysis, you know, we done in Scotland is as well with the, our climate tech report, was kind of that maybe the sector wasn't quite sure of their role in terms of, you know, where do they really fit in? You know, obviously there's a bigger argument and discussion around green data centres and, and whatnot. But I think as well, you know, those cleaner or greener technologies is, is the key. But is there a growing role for the sector to cut down on our emissions as well? Because obviously, you know, it's almost like the kind of invisible emissions in the sense that, you know, they're not maybe flying planes or drilling oil out the ground. Or, so the sector maybe thinks, Oh, net zero, that you know, we'll focus on something else. And do you think that the industry and the tech sector is getting to kind of understand the, the conversation a bit more? Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, for when we do our internal um, assessment, our what, like most, I suppose, small companies, our biggest emissions come from scope three, so that's our indirect emissions. And of that, again, one of the largest chunk is our cloud data processing that we buy in. Um, and it's, when you see it quite starkly there, it is quite significant. But you do see the, you know, the big players in the market like AWS, like Microsoft, they are doing work to kind of, um, yeah, to look at how they can lower those emissions in terms of green data centers and that kind of thing. I think as a, as a small data, as a small company ourselves, we are a little beholden to what those 
you know what those cloud software providers do um, and that's kind of an unfortunate fact but it's I think hopefully we can see those big players in the market or they are working on it um, and perhaps I think where what we can do better is maybe look at how we can use them more efficiently so we're using less of it and that's and that's the same with everything, right? Reducing will always be better than offsetting. And it's just about kind of being creative about where where can you get those efficiencies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the, the global piece as well, say you've I mean, I think since COP, you know, you've I think you've can be on this speaking circuit, you're in a few different countries as well. And you know, looking at Scotland's role, how is the, the kind of the perception in those countries of Scotland? Where are the kind of your strengths and indeed kind of weaknesses? Because you sort of mentioned the investment community, and again, some of the kind of findings from some of our research around that was that the problem in Scotland is you know, we don't really have the same level of kind of VC funding as London do, for example. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm actually going to the Climate Tech um, Conference down in uh, London Tech Week as well, and it'll be interesting to see what the kind of market is down there. I mean, obviously, London, you know has probably got more kind of legacy off that as well. But is that something that we need to ramp up here? But then equally, how do we kind of continue to build on our strengths as well, I suppose? Absolutely. I think it's a very different kind of scale in Scotland than you see in London. I mean, even in California, obviously, is the kind of gold standard, isn't it? Um, but I think in terms of our strengths, when, when we're talking to, you know, with other countries, for example, I think its size actually does lend itself to creating that kind of that really tight networking kind of um, cluster, I suppose, is the buzzword at the moment. Um, you know, for example, you know, we technically operate within the space sector because we use satellite data. So we're a downstream space company. And Scotland as a as a country really punches above its weight in terms of the space sector so and a lot of that has to do with the amount of small satellites that are that are built out of Glasgow but it also because we're we're small and we're well networked we also um kind of make up every part of the data value chain in that kind of in that whole mission cycle so you know we build satellites and we'll be able to launch satellites we have people building the the chips and the software that can control satellites and we'll have people who are doing stuff with the data coming from satellites and then selling that to to government to public sector and the fact that you've got that whole mission cycle and we all talk to each other and we all know each other it really really strengthens the sector and i think it's same for the kind of tech and, and, and data sector that we operate in as well you know it, it, we're very close physically to to talent coming out of universities of researchers so it, it means that it's a bit easier to kind of um yeah kind of create those innovation clusters and, and figure out what's coming down that innovation pipeline so i think that's a real strength that we need to we can play to a bit more yeah, no, I, I absolutely say that. I think um, there, there definitely is such strengths in there. And in, in fact, that kind of leads nicely on to the, the next kind of broader theme around the skills piece as well. And, you know, on one hand, you're absolutely right, you know, that industry links with, you know, universities has always been quite strong in Scotland. You know, it's been the reason why, you know, some companies actually want to be based here, you know, some the FDI piece as well. But I think obviously right now, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of discussion around skills as well, you know. And in some ways, you know, it's not necessarily unique to one particular sector. Every sector right now seems to have challenges with skills, really. And, I mean, I guess, you know, what's your kind of take on the, the skills vacuum and the skills kind of agenda for the 
climate tech world, if we want to call it that, and the sustainability piece. Because obviously, as you say, you know, there are a lot of people who are very much interested in this, and I suppose it's about how do we harness that appetite and passion and actually channel into industry and, and placements and programs and graduates and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, as you say, skills, I think, is affecting every sector at the moment. And we're, we're not immune to that by any means. I think it's it's tough as an employer out there to kind of not just get the skills that you need, but then to kind of retain them as well. Um, I think something that we've had some success with is actually working quite closely with universities. So we've had a couple of um, kind of university placements. So this is on the sort of software engineer, software development side, where they come halfway through their degree at Napier University and, and they, and they um, do a year of work with us. And more often than not, they'll stay with us afterwards, even if it's on part time while they finish their degree. And similarly, we've had kind of PhD people come in and do short placements and really add a lot of value in that short time. And I think there's definitely something in that in terms of getting people who are who are fresh, who are, are maybe not quite jaded by 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 kind of working for, for different companies yet. And, and kind of keen to to contribute and and to grow as well and, and kind of take take those opportunities because it's it's really as I'm sure a lot of other steps are finding that kind of it's not just recruiting in the skills it's then the kind of turnover of staff that's happening people aren't staying in jobs for as long as they used to so kind of keeping people and getting them to buy into not just the role but the the mission of the business and and that should be where climate tech in general has an advantage because the the mission in general is is pretty strong but um yeah i guess kind of keeping that front and center and, and keeping communicating that to people that you know it's, it's a worthwhile thing because it's hopefully got to help in the long run yeah no absolutely again i think that's where we always kind of differentiate climate tech from clean tech but climate tech actually had that mission piece at the core of you know, your your values and beliefs but I think as you can articulate there, so the challenge right now seems to be, I think, again, a concern you know, for the kind of, you know, sustainability world is that you know, people, you know, a couple of years ago, even up until then, you know, having that mission piece and tie-in to, the, to their job was really important. It was right up there. But now with costs of living, pressures and stuff, all of a sudden sort of salaries and wages have kind of almost went back to that forefront as well do you, do you still do you, do you see things level out at some point and people can get back to that or do you think we're on a slippery path they're oblivious at this rate <laughs> well i i hope we're starting to level out i think it will take some time you know i think it's it's not just i'm obviously at the moment with cost of living salaries like a huge driver but i think also as we're sort of coming out of the pandemic and get figuring out hybrid working remote working how this actually works long term it's it's going to be a real shift for for businesses to figure out well, what what's the kind of the the golden cocktail that will make it work you know we've we made fully remote work and we know how to do that and we know how being in the office works but hybrid seems to be the future and that's it's it's not quite as straightforward because there's so many other factors but that flexibility i believe will be really really important not just to kind of you know for mental well-being and health but i think also without it you kind of rule out a huge pool of talent you know we've we've recruited recently a few people um on a part-time basis that we maybe wouldn't have as as you know working mums or whoever and it's you know 
they've made a huge impact. And you think without that flexibility built in, there's a real risk of losing that talent. And it's, I think it'd be really important to, to keep in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's absolutely the case now as well. I mean, I think obviously there are still some things with the, the hybrid working piece that's not necessarily unique to other sectors, isn't it? You know, how, what day do you go in the office and do you go in and there's one person there? And, you know, it's all, you know, I think we're all still trying to figure out that. But I think, you know, that may, you know, kind of level itself out, you know, relatively, relatively soon. On the, I guess, the broader economic kind of standpoint here as well, I think where do you kind of see the whole, I guess, how we need to change our economic way of life? You know, how do we continue to still kind of grow cleanly? You know, because obviously for many years, you know, when economy's been in growth mode, you know, that's been that's been great, but then it's been a lot of it's been very damaging to the environment, you know. So it's almost like, you know, Robin Peter to be Paul sort of thing. So how do we, I guess, find a better equilibrium in the sense that you know, our economy kind of still grows? but in a sustainable kind of manner. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about finding those potential growth opportunities. Um, and I think, again, the investment community will p- play a really key role. And I think that's also potentially where individuals can play a role. I've, I've read somewhere that the one thing that individuals can do, it's not necessarily riding their bike to work or, or taking the train more. It's where they're investing their pension. And I think that, that can have a really transformational uh, view if you think about auto enrollment and how many new people come into the job market every year that's a huge amount of new money that's coming in um and i think if people are more aware about how their pensions are being invested and also how much of a choice they have to actively invest that that could be a real game changer but at the same time i think there's still a lot of um not a huge amount of clarity around what a green investment looks like and what you know I, th- I think we're getting to the point where we know what a harmful investment looks like and we know what we don't want to invest in but it's it's still blurry and it's not an easy thing to think about well, what's what's green enough you know we still do need to invest in this transition it's not necessarily a case of immediately ruling out fossil fuels because we don't have an energy source to back it up, as is sort of proven by the energy crisis at the moment. So it's about investing in the transition and making sure we're thinking long term enough to really invest in those sort of in those new technologies that will replace the harm the harmful stuff like fossil fuels. So that means investing in renewables, looking at hydrogen strategy, but doing it now. It needs to be accelerated. I think that's really clear. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely see. And I think, you know, one thing that I guess the energy crisis has probably taught us, there is a degree of kind of vulnerability about how we source our energy crisis. One of the podcast guests we had on a couple of months ago, Dieter Helm, you know, kind of called it, you know, a massive you know, energy policy sort of failure, really. Um, yeah, I think he did a white paper several years back explaining how we're almost on the cusp of an energy crisis and we just kind of kept kicking the can down the road and, and whatnot as well. So I think, as you say, it's important to to kind of you know, accelerate that now. I mean, one of the points you, you mentioned there, I guess, was around behavioural change as well. And I guess you're absolutely right in the sense that people, you know, things like looking at pensions is absolutely key as well. But I guess for those that are maybe listening that maybe aren't in you know, maybe don't have that, you know, the, the bandwidth to look at and stuff like that as well. Do you still feel that those smaller behavioural changes are, are 
equally important as well, or do you still see it being more of a, a top-down approach, I suppose? Oh, I, I mean, I definitely, the individual, every little counts, I think, whether it's kind of, um, you know, using less energy, thinking about how you're travelling, all that kind of thing. But I think it's, it's I think it's really important that, government and business create that kind of enabling environment it's all very well telling someone that they shouldn't use their car but if they've been forced to move out of town because the the price of property has gone up and and have the local transport isn't good enough to get them there then you know there's a kind of there's a bit of a failure in, in in planning and in policy there so it's making sure that you know when new new towns are developed that there is proper um you know uh infrastructure in place that you know it's all very well saying oh well just everyone will move to electric cars we'll make sure that the charging points are in place and that they're coming that they're being um sort of that renewable energy is going into them and it, i think making it easier for individuals to make those choices will, will then kind of have a much more long long lasting impact i think no, absolutely. It's funny. Um, I feel like we could probably talk a lot about EVs and you know, don't want to get down that rabbit hole. But what I would say on that is I think as well, we, the EV argument is an interesting one. But having done a bit of work around mobility as a service, actually, and shifting people into different modes of transport as well, I do actually think that is one of the more strategic ways forward, in all honesty, because EVs do still have quite a lot of problems with them in terms of congestion, the infrastructure here is not not good enough already? The grid's kind of breaking point as it is. So there's a lot to be discussed around EVs, but maybe bank that for mm -hmm. another day. Um, I suppose on the broader education point, I mean, you know, how do we, I suppose, you know, how do we get it right from the kids growing up, right? Which is obviously important. And I think a lot of them clearly are very passionate about this, which is fantastic. But then I suppose, how do we, I suppose a bigger challenge in some regards is how do we upskill and reskill those in the workforce who have a lot of experience in different aspects of life, you know, whether it's leadership, communications, crisis management, who are still vital to the, the workforce and the, the economy. But how do we, I guess, get, get the environmental piece into their day-to-day -day language and their day-to-day -day narrative? That's a really good question. I mean, I think some of it will come from, again, the the sort of the push from the markets and from policy about what companies have to do. So it's about embedding that sustainability in all companies, not just thinking about it as its own little sector. And yeah, I think that will be a real kind of upskilling, reskilling piece in terms of ensuring that people have the kind of tools that they need. Um, like you say, that they, they've probably got the skills. It's just learning about the kind of the specific challenges and how to kind of embed them within within the organisation. Um, and then I think there's a real opportunity to then, you know, take whether it's software engineers, mechanical engineers, and take them into more kind of climate specific or, or green companies because I'm sure they have a huge amount of technical expertise that. Could be really, really put to put to use here, but it's I suppose making sure that we can we can kind of match what what they're used to in terms of remuneration, in terms of reward, total rewards, all that kind of thing, and and you know making it an appealing sector to work for, as well as having the bandwidth to do that upskilling piece. 
Yeah, no, I absolutely say that. I mean, on the, the broader skills piece, I mean, it's hard to explain. You always need various skills in any workforce. Um, but what are some of the, I guess, the key ones for yourself and the, the team at Ecometrical? What are the, I guess, I mean, there seems to be the big one that's cited quite regularly in tech, actually, is around leadership in the sense that, and I think in some ways, that's not too dissimilar to sustainability world in the sense that, you know, there's lots of people with deep expertise, which is fantastic. And evidently you need that. But then possibly where there's a gap is around the commercialization piece, you know, leading a team. You know, these are the things that are, they're not soft skills. I wouldn't say soft skills, but these are the kind of skills that perhaps you know aren't as, as, as recognised as much in a, a CV or, or, or whatever. And so, what do you, where do you kind of see you guys in that piece, and also the longer term vision there? Yeah, I, com- I completely agree. Those skills are a bit more nuanced and a bit more difficult to say that you've got a certificate in it. Um, but really, really important. You know, it's it's relatively easy to find people with, well, it used to be easier to find people with the strong technical expertise, but traditionally where we've kind of struggled is finding people who can bridge the gap, I suppose. So people who can who can look into the market and understand what happens and sort of problem solve, you know, what are the questions that we're getting? How do we answer them? Then also translating that back. So someone who is incredibly technical might be able to solve the problem, but they might not always be able to translate that to a, a language that the customer understands. So bridging that gap, I think, is really, really important. And it's something that we've been been working on as a company. You know, we recognize that we've been putting a lot of emphasis on both in terms of kind of development within the company and also um, in looking at recruitment about, you know, we, you can it's a it's a lot easier to train those those technical skills. But when you have the slightly more nuanced soft skills already in built, it's just a bit easier to take people to the next level. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely quite a core piece of the puzzle that we're keen to make sure that we get right and we continue to develop. You know, I don't think you've, you can ever rest in your laurels. You've never, No one's ever sussed it, particularly in this sector. No, no, I absolutely say that. And I think as well, you know, it's it's about working with me. It sounds like you guys with the education piece is, is, is key as well as, you know, working with, you know, schools and, and indeed colleges as well, you know. And I think, you know, often, you know, we, we've maybe been a bit more, you know, thought about universities as the sort of golden bullet as well. But I think now more than ever with, particularly with the kind of sustainability piece as well. Colleges probably have a little bit more agility in terms of those shorter upskilling and reskilling courses as well, um, which I think is important as well. And I take it, I mean, from your point of view, is there anything you would, if you had a wish list, if you like, from education providers, school, government, to work with industry, what would would that look like? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think there is... I suppose it's it's almost that kind of it's a how to work sort of qualification, which is obviously really difficult to define. But um, it's sort of, yeah, how to um, how to kind of identify your own uh, strengths so that you know that you're working to them and sort of kind of teaching that self-awareness. I think there's definitely also a kind of yeah commercialization piece knowing that with with any kind of technical thing obviously the the theory is really really important but the application is is just as if not more important 
and, and understanding. So, for the, for example, we work with um, remote sensing um, experts. So it's not just about how do I process this data to get it the, you know, the most accurate, which is obviously really important. But it's thinking about, OK, how can I use this data and apply it to a real world problem? And then what impact can that have? And how do I how do I do that? And how do I kind of um, rally a team around me and get them to help me do that? Sort of acknowledging that you might not have the certain skills, whether it's, um, you know, marketing skills, for example. And how do you work with the marketing team to then get that out to product? So I don't know if that's necessarily a course <laughs> or well, one course, yeah. but it's well, about kind of embedding well, those skills, right, into into maybe more technical things. Yeah, no, I think no, it, it's absolutely true. See, I think there's a, an argument here as well. It's like, you know, people say when we're in school, why didn't anyone tell us about energy bills or, you know, mortgages or, you know, and whatnot. So I think that is true. And I suppose probably you'd be looking at something around, like, you know, the business environment there as well. And you'll know, get an industry to kind of have a closer relationship with education providers and not edu- not necessarily industry creating the courses, because I do believe that industry should work alongside the education because you don't want people coming out and it's all essentially irrelevant to what's going on in the modern world. But at the same time, you know, education experts are, are there for a reason. You know, they've been doing this for many years, you know, so clearly they're doing a good job. But I think it is about, you know, working alongside them collaboratively, um, I suppose. In the in the kind of final segment, see, one of the things we always kind of, I guess, finish on and kind of look at is, I guess, optimism, you know, pessimism, ambitions for the future. So the first of the kind of two pieces always kind of look at is, I mean, where do you, where do you kind of see it happening over the next kind of with this podcast? We always focus more on twenty thirty as opposed to twenty forty five and twenty fifty because it's more we try and focus on the more immediacy of you know the kind of policy developments and whatnot as opposed to twenty forty five. So where do you see? I suppose the next kind of few years. Where do where do we go? And then I suppose longer term, are you optimistic about the 2045, 2050 targets in Scotland and the UK? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think particularly given the current um, political global climate, um, who knows? I, I suspect it might get worse before it gets better. You know, governments are kind of understandably being diverted at the moment. There's war, there's um, cost of living crisis, there's probably a res- recession coming. It's, you know, there's a lot going on. It does, however, feel like climate is still part of it. And I think there's still people kind of working in the background to make sure it remains as such. So I, I think by 2030, I'm not sure we'll necessarily be where we want to be. Um, I do think it might get a little bit worse before it gets better. But I think, at least I hope, we will have a better plan. I also think by 2030, you're going to have a kind of this this new generation and new sets of skills entering the market that will be really important so people who kind of understand the problem a lot better than perhaps people in the last 20 or 30 years have done people who hopefully have the right skills um to kind of help address some of these problems and really i think by that point hopefully business will have shifted into the kind of more must have the nice to have um sort of um kind of mentality and it's already coming there you know at this point we're not trying to persuade people about the importance of climate change anymore. I think, you know, bar some some parts of the world, really in the UK anyway, I think we're there. It's just more about what 
what can we afford to do and how quickly can we do it? So I think the next 10 years will probably be about making sure we're investing things that really accelerate that progress. Because um, I am generally optimistic about, you know, long term, 20, 2040, 2050. But uh, I think the next few years might be might be tough going. Yeah, no, one of the things you mentioned there, Sarah, that, that was really interesting was around that younger generation, you know, by 2030 as well. And you would, you know, I think one of the things in that is that they will possibly hold government to account slightly better than the other ones. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, government will be under pressure. You know, I do try and avoid politics discussion as much as I can and, and, and this as well. But, you know, I think the political kind of, landscape may may look quite differently then as well and again again just the, i suppose the the final point there if there was any kind of key messages to those smaller companies or those who are about to embark on the net zero journey what would be your i suppose your advice to them oh good question i mean i think start start small start manageable and um, you know there's always a question of materiality when you start so it's think so what what are the things i have control over that i can change and i can reduce and start there there's always an opportunity to do more and to build but i think first of all measure your impact figure out what your baseline is and then find those easy wins and then once you start that journey it's much easier to kind of be more ambitious and be a bit more punchy and start to kind of enact real change in how you do things yeah no i absolutely say i think that's great advice for for all companies of all shapes and sizes actually as well but no sarah thank you very much for your your time this morning it's been a a real pleasure been some really insightful discussion there as well and a great way to uh, finish off on episode 12 our our last episode of this series so thank you very much sarah and uh, take care for now thanks thanks mark great great speech as always cheers sarah Climate Conversations is a Herald podcast sponsored by Epson. To find out more about their environmental vision, visit epson.co.uk slash about slash environment and take 20% off an annual subscription to the Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Enter HeraldPod 2021 at your checkout and access our award-winning journalism from your mobile, tablet and PC.